It is a privilege uh, to be able to speak to you this afternoon, and I'm excited to speak to you from these words uh, from the book of Revelation. If you would turn in your um, worship folder with me and read along as I read God's word aloud. We're reading from Revelation 1 and Revelation 3. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on the scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze, glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters." In his hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance, and when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now, look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades." To the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door, and no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, But are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that's going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will ride on them. The name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the church says, the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Now, I've been excited to speak to you about, from this letter that was addressed by Jesus, it was dictated by Jesus to one of his disciples, his closest disciples named John, who was on the island of Patmos. He writes this letter to the church of Philadelphia. And uh, in honor of that, I wore my my good Philadelphia t-shirt, the I'm not angry, I'm from Philly (laughs) t-shirt, which is fitting for me in particular uh, after having lived here for so long. But uh, I, I, we're, I want to look at this passage not just because it has kind of a neat connection to our city. This was a letter that was written to a specific first century church in Philadelphia, Turkey. 
And the reason I've picked this particular passage to speak on today was because I think that this word, this, this particular address to this church, not just because it has the name Philadelphia, but because it, we, this, this letter has things that we need to hear. It has, it has admonitions and encouragements that speak very much to our situation. See, he writes this letter, and he, as, this letter is written, it's written to a church in the city of Philadelphia that's described here as people who have little strength. Verse 8 tells us this. They are people who have little strength. Actually, the word in Greek means they're puny. So to this puny church, Jesus writes these words of encouragement. He writes these words. He's saying, you have but little power. And I find us in this. You know, the church in Philadelphia was a church that had little peop- a few people, had few resources, Sometimes things felt like they were held together with duct tape. Maybe you can feel some of that sometimes being part of liberty. And I find us in this church, people who are weak, people who have little power. And Jesus writes this, and it's not necessarily a rebuke. He's not saying it's a bad thing to be a church of little power. We have three puny churches here. I mean, let's be honest with ourselves. There may be 700 people in this room. There are 1.5 million in Philadelphia. There are 4.5 million in the Philadelphia area. Even on the range of churches, we're small. My wife grew up going to a church of 30,000 people in Memphis, Tennessee, with its own interstate exit off I-40. We're not big. (laughs) And here's a word of encouragement, though. God loves small churches. God loves small churches. Since the beginning of liberty, it has been part of our conviction. It's been part of what's fueled our vision to say, you know, God works in small churches. And we have chosen to grow our churches by multiplication, by saying it's a good thing to have lots of people like this in a room. It's a better thing to have Lots of people in three different rooms and four different rooms and five different rooms. And we've continued to say, bigger isn't always better. God works through puny churches where people are known and loved and have to be engaged. And it's been a strategic decision of ours to say, we're going to limit the size of our churches in order that we can plant other ones. We can give away. So we're puny churches and you may feel like a puny person. You may have walked in here today, and since you've walked in the door, you've been comparing yourself. You look around and you think, I am an insignificant person in my church. How much more in this group of people? You look around and you compare yourself all the time. I have very little gifts. I have very little add here. I have very little contribute. There are all these other people who are ahead of me in terms of importance in our church. I'm never up front. I'm never the person people go to. And yet what we need to hear from this word, this passage, is that God loves puny Christians and God loves puny churches. It doesn't matter if there's a mega church if it doesn't have a mega Jesus. Even the most miniature church that holds on to a mega Jesus. This is where power and significance come from. And this is where we read in this book, this is the eyes of God are on those who recognize the fullness and bigness of who Jesus is and cling to that. 
So let's look at that today. This is exactly what the book of Revelation is actually about. Some of you have grown up uh, maybe with a lot of different pictures of what Revelation is about. Maybe you've thought it's about apocalyptic angel battles. You know, you've thought about it's about God's secret plan for world domination. But the book of Revelation is called Revelation not because it's revealing God's secret plans, but because it's revealing Jesus. It's giving new pictures, bigger pictures of Jesus. See, some of you grew up in the church, and and the pictures that you saw of Christ as a young person looked like Jesus just stepped off the set of a shampoo ad. You know, he's waving his golden locks, you know. And what is the message of that, that, that picture? Jesus is weak. Jesus is kind of almost humorous. He looks like... He's never going to be able to do business with my problems. Some of you grew up with pictures of Jesus where he's still on the cross. Crucifix. What pictures does that give us of Christ? It says, your God is still dead. But not the book of Revelation. It gives us a different picture. It gives us a fuller picture of a risen and powerful Jesus. And we need to see this. Um, There's a scene in many movies and books, and I'm just going to pick one that makes me look old so that you all feel young and and hip. Uh, So the the movie The Breakfast Club, okay, way old, all right, 80s movie, comes out. It's about a group of high school students, and they're all in detention on a Saturday. And and the the group is made up of the jock, and there's the the cheerleader, there's the freak girl, there's there's the kind of studious nerd guy, and they're all together. And, you know, I'm sorry... This movie's been out for 25 years, so if it's a, this is a spoiler, too bad. Uh, you know, but they discover, right, over the course of the Saturday, they have more in common than they are different. Well, over the course of the day, the, the kind of freak of the group, she's kind of almost a, a pre-goth type. She's, she's got crazy hair, and she says crazy things, and she has dark makeup on, and she's just weird. And Molly Ringwald, who's uh, the cheerleader in the movie... She takes this girl, and it's, she's played by Ali Sheedy, and she takes her away, and she, she does her up. She does her makeup, and she does her hair. And there's this incredible scene where they come into the room, and all these people who have seen this girl a thousand times and yet have looked past her, all these guys sit up. They take notice. They, it's, it's a double take. They don't even recognize her. This... The book of Revelation is the breakfast club moment of the Bible. Do you recognize this, Jesus? This isn't the shampoo ad, Jesus. And this isn't the crucifix, Jesus. This is a Christ who has blazing eyes. Who has brilliant snow white hair. Out of his mouth is coming a a two-edged sword. Do you recognize him? You almost have to do a double take. This is the risen, victorious Jesus. This is who our God is. And see, we, puny churches, people who have no strength, some of you puny Christians, walk in here, you're like, I don't even know if I belong in this place. We need this picture. This is a gift for us. These pictures of the book of Revelation of Jesus powerful. Jesus triumphant. Jesus who's a mega Christ. We need these images. And so we're going to play hidden picture. 
You know the, the kids' books where they have to find, in the, in the photo, they have to find the hidden pictures? We're going to look through this, this picture of Jesus as it's written to this book in this church in Philadelphia. And we're going to look at four hidden pictures. And I want you to look at them with me. The key, the door, the pillar, and the name. That's what we're going to look at briefly this afternoon. The key, the door, the pillar, and the name. Let's jump in. The key. To the people in Philadelphia... Jesus is presented as one who holds the key of David. He holds the key of David. Why? What's significant about that? The key is the symbol that appears in other places in the Bible. In Matthew 16, Jesus tells his disciples, Peter, but it's actually a plural. He's actually saying it to all of them. I give you the keys to the kingdom. And it's a sign of entrance into God's family, entrance into God's people, entrance into God's community. And so... We see here Jesus, and he's holding a key. And the fact that Jesus holds a key means there's a door, right? It's fairly easy to tell, but there's a lock. And I understand that this kind of picture of who God is is actually very hard for a lot of people. Some people really struggle with this kind of picture of Jesus because they're saying, this implies what I always think about Christians everywhere, exclusivity. Christians think, you know, there's, this is, it's just so exclusive. Only one way. One of the many complaints about Christianity is this. And, and we as a church, as a movement of churches, we preach this. Jesus says he is the way and the truth and the life. Nobody comes to the Father but through him. It's, there's an exclusivity to it. They're saying this is the way to know God. There's one door and there's one key. And yet Jesus holds it. But what people sometimes don't realize when they say, this is so exclusive, how can you believe something like this, is that every group, every community, every organization is exclusive in its views and values. I heard this from someone else recently, and I I thought it was very helpful. He he described how every organization you go to, let's let's say you're part of a political organization in your neighborhood, And you become a leader within that organization. And you espouse the virtues and values of that organization. You buy into its ideals. You're going to be a a leader within this. And over time, though, your ideas change. You begin to think differently. You begin to say, I'm not sure I'm as passionate about this as I once was. Well, if you divulge this to people within the group, and they say, you know, we're a little uncomfortable about you being a leader here. We think maybe you should step down. You shouldn't be offended by that, right? I mean, the the organization has its values and ideals. That's what makes it the organization. And if you are not in line with those, you shouldn't be in leadership there. Every organization has that. Exclusivity in its own right is not a bad thing. If your doctor, you know, diagnosed you with cancer, and it's, it's a very aggressive form of cancer and says, you know, this is cancer... But I've got a purple pill. And you, you can take this purple pill once a day, and I guarantee that you will be okay. You're going to make it. Would you say, oh, how exclusive is this guy? I don't want a purple pill. I want a blue pill. How ridiculous is that? You know, your friends would think you were crazy if you're saying, this is, so, this is so narrow. I have to take this pill once a day. I wanted a pill that was once a week. Now, you, you would take the pill. You would submit yourself to this. You would say... Yeah, I'll do this. See, the problem is not exclusivity. It's exclusion. It's exclusion. It's 
saying to someone, you can't be a part of this because you are blank. You can't be a part of this because of this characteristic of who you are. That's really, that's really the point. And this is where this picture of Jesus is so inviting. Because it's Jesus who says, yeah, there's a lock and there's a door and I hold the keys. But everybody can come. You're invited in. You're all welcome. Recently, Ezra, who's uh, our four-year-old, has been singing the song by The Who, uh, which is, let my love open the door to your heart. So he sings, let my love open the door. But he messes up the words and he sings, let my mom open the door. (laughs) And that's probably, that makes a lot of sense. His mom opens the door most of the time for him, right? But it's not bad theology because our heavenly father does open the door. His love has opened the door. He has sent his son, Jesus. Jesus, who came to live the perfect life that was actually set out for all of us, a life of holiness, a life of other-centeredness, a life of love for others. He fully obeys God's law. And then he comes and dies a criminal's death in our place. The door stands, therefore, open by the keys. Jesus holds that key. Some of you are Harry Potter fans. And uh, J.K. Rowling, the writer of the Harry Potter books, has come up with some great images. And she, in, in one of her books, she describes a port key. And a port key is just an everyday, ordinary object. It's just anything. It can be anything. It's an ordinary object that's been given spells and magic, you know. And so if you touch it, it transports you to another world, to another place, another, another whole location. And I think of Jesus as such a port key. He's, he's ordinary. Some of you have unbelieving friends and family who, who, when you describe what's happening in your life, I'm really finding meaning and purpose in this person, Jesus, his life given for me. They say, how ordinary. That's so Really? That's so silly. You're you're such an idiot. He's so ordinary. And yet, this is what we're finding. So many of you, when you have grasped onto Christ, have found that he transports you into an entirely different way of living, an entirely different way of seeing. You find that Jesus takes you places you never thought you'd go. This is the reason we chose the key as the logo for our church. We see Jesus opens this door for all of us. He welcomes us. His love has opened the door. All are in. All are welcome. Get the key. Second hidden picture in this this image we see of Jesus is Jesus describes here not just a key, but an open door. And this this may sound odd. It may sound like Jesus has a stuttering problem. He says it twice here. He says, uh, he talks about being the key of David. But then he says in verse 8, he opens a door that no one can shut. He's not repeating himself. He's saying something more. See, this church in Philadelphia in Turkey had been a church that had had a lot of doors slammed in their face. Slammed shut right in their face. A lot of closed doors. First, they were a part of the Roman Empire. In the first century, the, Rome, the Romans saw Christians as this bizarre group of people who believed there was one and only, God, one, and only one God. Remember, you remember back to seventh grade, you had to study 
Roman mythology, right? Jupiter and Juno and Pluto and all those gods and goddesses. And, and not only did the Romans hold up this pantheon of gods, they also said the emperor was a god. And so when Christians came along and said, no, there's one only living and true God, they said, you're, you're nuts. And they called them atheists. They called them atheists because they wouldn't believe in all the rest of them. And what we read in these other letters to some of these other churches in, in the book of Revelation is that they had people of their, in their churches because they would not say, sure, Jupiter, Jesus, why not have a whole collection? Because they did that, some of them were roasted alive. They were killed in ridiculously terrible ways. Church history is full of all kinds of horrible things. And it's a, the door was slammed shut in their face. Second, we read here that the, the door within even the Jewish community was slammed in their face. So there's a statement here about how these, the, the, the people in the synagogue, the, the other Jews, would not expel them. They sent them away. And it's not an anti-Semitic statement when he says they're of the synagogue of Satan. He's just saying, look, these people have shut the door big time. To the, not only to this group of people, these Christians, but to the living God. These people had experienced a lot of slammed doors. And so when Jesus says, I open a door that no one can shut, this is a word of incredible encouragement to this congregation. Saying, I'm the one who opens doors. It's not so much what you do, it's what I do. That's what Jesus is telling them. It's a word of incredible encouragement to them. This is important for us to hear, Liberty Church. This is an important word for us. We talk a ton in our churches about mission. We preach regularly about being missional, people who are on mission. People seeing God's agenda, living life according to God's agenda. And here's my concern, though. Sometimes when we talk about this, sometimes when I've preached on this, we sort of make this sound like God's agenda for the world is your job description. We sort of make it sound like, no, it's, you better get out there and open some doors. What do we see here? God is a missional God. God is the one who's opening doors. God who's the one who has an agenda for the world, and he hasn't given it to you as a to-do list. He is at work all around us. Many of you probably saw the movie uh, A Million Dollar Baby from a few years ago. And in the movie, Hilary Swank plays a, a young woman named Maggie who takes up boxing to try to earn some money. And she's training under Clint Eastwood. And she actually ends up being very good at this. And as she works her way up through the like, titles and begins to make a lot of cash, she goes back and there's this heartbreaking scene where she goes and she says, I want to do something for my mama. And she decides to buy her mother a house. Now, her mother has been living on welfare for years, and her mother has been extremely critical of her and rejected her. But she wants to do something for her. And so she goes and picks up her mom and her sister and brings them to a beautiful home and hands them keys and says, this is for you. And if you remember the movie, her mom chews her out. You're so stupid. This is going to ruin everything. This is going to ruin all my welfare checks. Why couldn't you have just given me the money? And Hilary Swank's character, Maggie, ends up driving home with Clint Eastwood in the car, her coach. 
in this rainy night, and it's a depressing scene. It's just this heart-rendering scene. I think some of us, this is a great picture sometimes of what Christians are like. When we forget that it's God who is on mission and not us. God is the one who opens the doors and not us. You know, in your relationship with your family or your friends, some of you are exhausted. Some of you are worn out. Or some of you have become cynical and jaded. The more we talk about mission, the more jaded and cynical you become. I'm so tired of hearing about this. So all these liberty guys talk about is mission, mission, mission. And because you think you're acting like Mackie, you think it's your agenda, your job to change people. You've been like Maggie, as if it was God's call for you to change other people, to change your neighbors, to change your block, to change your neighborhood, to change this city. You know, I, and it leads to a lot of shoulds and oughts in your head. Lots of shoulds. I should do this. I really should be doing that. Oughts. I, I ought to be more, I really ought to care about this more. I really ought to be involved in that. And you end up, some of you, cynical, jaded. This doesn't work, this whole mission thing that liberty's all about. I'm tired of hearing about it. But listen to verse 8. Behold, I have set before you a door that no one can shut. I've set before you. These, these words are inscribed on the cornerstone of a church about four blocks away from here, 10th Presbyterian. It's a great thing for a church to remember. God is the one who opens doors. We have a missional God. God is at work in our city. He is opening doors that no one can shut. When a group of 30 of us, Hubers, Bradford, some of you guys who are still in this room, got together and we began eight and a half years ago to pray about planting a church here. We didn't have a great logo. We didn't have great ads. We didn't have a great plan. We didn't have some killer strategy for taking the city. We had a lot of prayer. And we said, God, you're going to have to do this. In fact, we said to each other, we want to do something that's so hard that unless God is in it, it's destined to fail. We started off with this sense of radical dependence. God, you've got to do it. You're the one who opens doors. You're the one who makes things happen. We want to see you at work. Three and a half years ago, the elders, Liberty, Fairmount, and Fish, then Fishtown, were together at an elders meeting. And we were praying. We are praying about church planting. And we said, God, we're praying for you to open doors for more church planting. And the next day, Jared Ayers calls up Steve Huber and says, can we talk? When we've prayed, God has opened those doors. But I wonder. Pretty full room. Pretty impressive. Have we got to a point where we don't need that anymore? Man, things are happening. Ministry's going. We're opening lots of doors, right? Do we still believe? God, you're the one who opens doors. You're the one who makes things happen. We desperately need you to show up. We desperately need you, you who say, I open a door that no one can shut. Are we people of prayer? Are we people who are praying for God's work in our city? 
You who are worn out, who are worried about your mom and your friends and who are exhausted or cynical. The open door. Are you asking God? Fellow weaklings, this is a new way of thinking about mission. Where is God opening doors? Where are you asking him to? The key, the door, and now the pillar. The, The city of Philadelphia in Turkey was built on a volcanic plain, and it made for great wine. They grew great grapes in that soil, and it was an awesome place if you were a wine person, but it was not a great place to live because um, volcanic soil means volcanoes, and um, this, this area was susceptible to lots of earthquakes. And in A.D. 17, the, the, um, there was a massive earthquake that killed half the city. And actually, they were given a a free ride on taxes for many, many years. And the the emperor, whose name was Tiberius, actually gave tons of money to help rebuild this city. But for years after this, you can go look through, there's lots of research been done on this. The residents of Philadelphia would do business during the day in the city and go sleep outside in the countryside at night. They were so fearful. The aftershocks were so bad. It makes us think of the people in Japan this week. These people were incredibly fearful that there was nothing permanent in their city. And to this group of people, to this little puny church, Jesus writes about a promise of permanence to a people familiar with uncertainty and weakness. He says this, if you endure, I will make you a pillar in the temple of my God. What's a pillar? It's a picture of strength. It's a picture of stability you know, in my study over thinking about this this past week, I, it makes me think of one note that we have not, at least I have not, sounded very loudly within our liberty movement, which is this, the call, the mission of faithfulness. The mission of faithfulness. This is, there's a mission call to this church to faithfulness. Re- reading these passages, verse 11, hold fast. Verse, 12, verse 10, because you've kept my word about patient endurance. Verse 12, the one who conquers. We're, Read endures. This isn't a sexy word for our churches today. This isn't a sexy term in our culture today. The days of golden anniversaries and gold watches are long gone. We don't care about faithfulness. We care about impact. We care about big noise, big picture, big boom. And this is soup du jour in the church too. What's what, impact? And it's, it's a, a strain. If, if you're like one of these weird people who's a pastor or an elder and you think about this stuff a lot, you think about how do we measure the success of our churches? In some circles, a lot of churches have said, you know, if we kind of mess with the truth of this, if we kind of pull back on some of the harder parts of the scripture, kind of present the nicer parts, you know, we'll have more impact. Faithfulness. It's one of those bywords that's left to conservative churches that care about truth and yet have lost their sense of impact. And yet Jesus calls this church to have impact through faithfulness. Impact through faithfulness. I've been reading a book called The Loveliness of Christ. It's by a man named Samuel Rutherford. He's a contemporary of William Shakespeare. You've probably never heard of him. He was a nobody pastor who lived in a nobody place. He served in the, in the village of uh, Anworth, Scotland. And it was a poor, 
blue-collar, messed-up group of people. And this guy served in a dumpy church and didn't do a whole lot, and it wasn't a place that's going to change the world. And yet I would tell you very few Christians have had the incredible influence that this man has. Because he wrote a series of letters that have been collected into a book called The Loveliness of Christ, where he held up to people and said, you've got to see Jesus. Jesus is so much more beautiful and powerful than you ever imagined. He's so much more. The theme of these letters is Jesus is worth it. Let me me read you a couple of his statements. He says, every day we may see some new thing in Christ. His love has neither brim nor bottom. He says, my shallow and ebb thoughts. Think of a picture of the sea. They are not the compass that Christ sails by. I leave his ways to himself, for they are far, far above me. He says, our fair morning is at hand. The day star is near the rising, and we are not many miles from home. What matters the ill entertainment of the smoky ends of this miserable life? We are not to stay here, and we will be dearly welcome to him to whom we go. He says, Christ is as full of feast as you could ever hunger. He said, it says, if contentment were here, heaven were not heaven. He says, to live on Christ's love is a king's life. This guy has been feeding my soul because he believes in a mega Jesus. He believes in a big Jesus. Faithfulness and hanging in there in the midst of disappointments, in the midst of the ups and downs, in the midst of some of the great pains that you today are walking through can only be faced with a large Jesus. In this passage, when he calls them to endure, he says an interesting word here, this call for the church in Philadelphia, the word literally here means to hyper-endure, hang in to the extreme. There's only other one place it's used in the Bible. The other place it's used in the Bible is Hebrews chapter 12, where it says this. It says, Let us run with endurance the race that's been set out before us, looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him hyper-endured the cross, scorning its shame and is seated at the right hand of God forever. What's the point? It's the only way to become a pillar. The only way to find a sense of strength and stability in your life is by having a bigger picture of this person, Jesus. Is by seeing again the hugeness of this mega Christ and what he's done for us. This is why I, I, I cling to these words by Samuel Rutherford. Here was a guy who was weak, who was in a puny church of no significance. And yet his impact on the world was through his sense of calling other people to embrace the fullness and the beauty of Christ. Do you know Do you know what's the strength of Liberty Church? It's not our leadership. It's not preaching or songs or uh, funky shoes and cool demographics. It's Jesus. He's been the strength of the church. He is the faithful one. And he's calling us to a new measure of faithfulness. 
In much of our church world, usefulness seems to be the most important value. You know, if you can teach a home meeting, if you can organize a committee, if you can lead a team, maybe you feel like that's the currency of, of who's the most important at liberty, our gifts. And surely our gifts matter, and using our gifts for the body matters. But this isn't the picture we're given in this. Jesus doesn't need pillars to hold up his temple. He makes pillars in his temple that are near his throne, that can sit near the king of kings. Fellow weaklings, we're not called mostly to usefulness. We're called to relationship. We're called to a deeper relationship, to to be more awed, to be more taken with, to know more fully and deeply this Jesus, this king who's got blazing eyes and a sword coming out of his mouth and who opens doors that no one can shut and can make your life a pillar. The key, the door, the pillar, and finally, a new name. Finally, Jesus promises his church in in Philadelphia a new name. And this has been confusing for me. I've been a pastor of Liberty Fairmount for a long time. Uh, Liberty, Liberty, Northern Liberty's Fishtown East is like Prince. I don't know what to call you guys anymore. <laughs> Liberty Center City. I, I've been confused by South. And so we've decided, we've decided Liberty Fairmount to, your guys' names reflect your demographic, right? Your area. We've decided to change our name to Liberty Awesome. <laughs> but in this passage, he's not just giving them a nickname. Right? He tells them actually three names. I'm going to give you three names. I'm going to give you the name of my God, the name of the city of Jerusalem, and a new name. So what? What's the significance of a name? If you've ever looked up information on the French Foreign Legion, like many of you have, um, <laughs> the French Foreign Legion, a friend of mine told me about this recently. The French Foreign Legion has a, a, on their website, they have this invitation. Listen, it says, Whatever your origins, whatever your nationality or religion may be, whatever qualifications you may or may not have, whatever your social or professional status, whether you're married or single, the French Foreign Legion offers you a chance to start a new life. And you can sign up for the French Foreign Legion. And when you sign up for the French Foreign Legion, it doesn't matter your background. You get a new name. You get a new identity. The French Foreign Legion is full of all kinds of refugees and people seeking political asylum because you can join and you literally disappear. There's no extradition by any other court from the French Foreign Legion. They're sort of their own deal. And you can almost hear these people in the church in Philadelphia. It's almost like they get this call from Jesus to the French Foreign Legion. Whatever your origins and nationality, whatever your background, whatever your socioeconomics, you're invited by Jesus to start a new life. To you puny Christians, Jesus is saying this, you, you have little strength, you're unimpressive, you have little to offer, and yet Jesus gives you a new name, a new identity. Just like the French Foreign Legion, you can't be touched. It's a chance to start a new life. No matter how the rest of the world evaluates you, he has written his name of ownership across your life. He has called you his own, and no one can take that away. People of liberty, you're so weary. 
You spend so much time trying to open doors for yourself. You spend so much time trying to make a name for yourself. You spend so much time trying to build something of permanence and lasting value out of your life. Some of you are working so hard in your business, in your job, in your work world, in your social world. Some of you are working so hard within the church. Do you see? Do you see how rich you are? I know of no other people so rich as you. To have a king like this, to have a mega Christ who has said, I've given you a new name, my ownership upon you. I will make your life a pillar that will never be shaken. I've opened a door that no one can shut. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Would you pray with me? Father God, we honor you. We praise you that we have no weak or dead Christ. We have a living and triumphant Christ. We ask you, Lord, as we look at the weakness of our vision and the weakness of our faith, we thank you that you look upon us puny ones and you've given us the, the, the riches of the fullness of the Son of God raised from the dead. And we pray that you would help us to live as sons and daughters of the Most High, the one who holds the keys, the one who's opened a door that no one can shut, the one who makes our lives into a pillar, and the one who has written his name upon us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.